If you will take out your program, we are in week three. Uh, turn that inside out. You'll notice the outline there. As I said, we've got a lot to cover. We're in week three of 40 Days of Community. Um, we kick off the new year with a spiritual growth campaign where we're involving the whole, the whole church, not only everybody who's coming every week on Sunday morning or tuning in. I'm asking you to commit to six weeks in a row, um, but we have um, small, small groups that are meeting on campus and around our area in homes. We have about 50 high schoolers, 30 middle schoolers, over 300 people going through the weekly study guide and all the material on the videos that we have uh, been providing as well. And then we're also asking you, if you're not in a group, or even if you are, uh, that the best way to, to engage on kind of a daily basis is to grab one of the 40-day devotionals. These devotionals are about five to ten minutes with a little bit of journaling. And even if you haven't started yet, you could start today. You could go stop by Next Steps, grab one of these books. They're only like eight bucks. And, um, and you could start today. If you're behind, like let's say you're supposed to be on day 14 and you're on day five. That's okay. You just today read day six. And uh, don't try to catch it all up. Don't try to read all in, in one week. You just go with the next day. And if you miss a day, that's okay. Just go with the next day. Um, you don't have to be on anybody. Instead of 40 days of community, you may have 80 days of community. That's twice as good, isn't it? Uh, so don't worry about being behind. Just read the next devotion. It's more important that you spend a little bit of time with God and you're able to think about that um, all day long than it is to actually download the material. Um, it's designed to be consumed kind of a, a devotion at a time kind of a thing. So what we're doing in 40 days of community, especially a reminder for those of us who've been here and, and information for those of you who haven't, we're, kind of, we're doing two things. We're deepening the relationships that we have with our own church family, and then we're extending our relationships out into the, into the community, deepening the community within our church family, reaching out in love to the community around our church. And we're doing this because God says we're better together. God says he wants us to go through life together, not alone. All the way back in Genesis, you remember I said this last week, God said it's not good for man to be alone. So during these 40 days, I'm teaching these six messages. We're providing you with these six uh, small group opportunities. Um, my small group, we love this time of year uh, because we get to meet every week, and it kind of it fast forwards our relationships with each other. And, of course, re-kicks our spiritual growth back in. And 2022, I believe, is going to be a great year. We were created for community. That's what we've been talking about. We're wired for relationships. We're, we're made to go through life together. We were formed to be in a family. You're not only just your family of origin that God put you in, but his real purpose is for you to be in his family, to be adopted into his family for all of eternity and spend the rest of eternity with him. You, know, you may not realize this, but the people that you're sitting next to, you're connected to them. Turn to the person on both sides of you and say, I'm connected to you. Go ahead, turn to them. I know some of you, some of you are feeling like, hey, back off, buddy. That, you know, that's a little too much connection for me. Say, this little line on the seat means something, okay? Scoot over. Uh, it's, it's not so bad in here in the first service. Everybody was kind of like, cheek to cheek to cheek. I mean, it was like, wow, it was like an airplane. Um, I don't know where everybody came from. It was everybody had to get out there. I mean, you ladies, uh, be honest, right? You only get to wear these boots like once or twice a year in Florida. So, buddy, if it's on a Sunday, you're coming to church, right? I know, I know. I, I, you got these sweaters on. I, uh, I didn't pay enough attention. I, I forgot to bring a jacket. I wore long sleeves, but I thought it was going to warm up by now. 
We are created for community. And if you're part of the family of God, you really are connected to the people who are there on, on that row with you. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that it's easy to get disconnected in relationships. The longer you're, you're in relationship with people, the more things kind of creep in to sabotage the relationship. It's very easy to get disconnected from your children. That's why a lot of parents and children, they're estranged. It's very easy to get disconnected from your brothers or sisters. Somebody says something, and somebody remembers it and kind of takes up a grievance and a grudge. Even, even your husband or wife, the longer you're married, the easier it is to get disconnected, even from church. Some people get disconnected from church for months, years, decades. Today we're going to look at what causes that. Why do relationships fall apart? What destroys relationships? And more importantly, how can we put them back together or rebuild them? Or how do you build new relationships? Or if you have a healthy relationship, how do you keep it from disintegrating, from drifting, from, from going bad? The Bible tells us that we're connected. How do we stay connected? Today we're going to look at how relationships are destroyed, what destroys them, and then what do we do to build them back up? Now, I'm excited because the material that we're going over, as I was studying for this, I was realizing, man, this is stuff we talk about all the time. We do a whole series on relationships every couple of years, and this is some of the same principles. We do, we do a series on forgiveness or on some of these other topics for every couple of years, and, and these are some things that you've heard. me. So you're not going to hear a lot of brand new information, but I want to try to tie all these things together. And what I guess I'm saying is, you know, if you could... You can apply this, by the way, you can apply this to your work relationships. You can apply this to your, your nuclear family. You can apply this to your relationship with your parents, with your kids, with your siblings, with your spouse. You can apply this in so many areas of life because in every relationship we have these, these things that sabotage them or ruin or destroy them. And really, what I'm going to share with you today, if if we, could, if we could get a hold of this and apply, it would save us thousands of dollars in counseling. Yes, what destroys relationships, how to rebuild them? How do you keep it from, from happening in the first place? And as I said, this isn't rocket science. God has said that every relational problem comes from basically four negative attitudes that we have, and I want to give those to you. Every problem that we have in a relationship it happens because of one or more of these four problems that we have. These are the enemies. They're the enemies to community, and they're the enemies of relationship with everybody that we're in relationship with. The first one I want you to jot down is selfishness. Selfishness destroys relationships. It's, in fact, it's the number one enemy. The number one cause of conflict in our life is selfishness. The number one cause of arguments. It's, it's, selfishness is the number one cause of divorce. It's the number one cause of war. James 4, verse 1 and 2 says, What causes fights and quarrels? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it? Everything starts because of our self-centeredness. It's, it's very easy for selfishness to creep into our relationships. 
when you start a relationship, you remember when you start, you were you first started your relationship. You remember how hard you worked to not be selfish, but to put that other person first. You're very unselfish. Remember, can any of you remember back to when you were dating? I know for some of that's a long time ago, right? And you remember how you got the door and you, you know, you got the check and you, and you, you put them for what do you want to do kind of a thing. Wouldn't you agree that we put more energy into building a relationship than we do in maintaining a relationship? It seems like selfishness just starts to, to creep in. We stop making the effort. It's easy to, to slide into selfishness. I've always said, if there were more courting in marriage, there would be less marriages in court, right? You need to date your mate, all of us. It happens to all of us. So we all know that selfishness destroys relationships. That's not new information. We know this. The question then because so why don't we change? Or better yet, why can't we change when we want to change? Why can't we be more unselfish? I think it's because it's a... It's, a human, it's human nature to be selfish. I think of me most of the time. I don't think of you. I think of me most of the time. My needs, my interests, my hurts. How do I look? How do I feel? How does, how does it affect me? Who's hurt me? And, and you don't think about me. You think about you most of the time. You think about yourself more than anybody else. And it's natural and selfish. If we were to, if we were to take a big group picture, if we were all up here on the stage, and I got a professional photographer, and they took a big picture, and we were all in there, kind of smiling, looking our best. What is the number one determining factor of whether it's a good picture or not? It's how you look. You know, we have a hundred of us up here, and if ninety-nine of us look great, I mean, we are just sparkling. But you're kind of like. Eh. You know, then it's a bad picture. Pastor, can't you change that? Don't post that. You know, I'm like, can we take the picture again? No, no, no. We'll, we'll Photoshop you in or we'll put an emoji over your, uh, your face. And people, oh, I recognize that sweater. Who is that? Yes, we had to emoji her. Um, when a baby, remember some of you have had kids. Remember when, you're, when your kids are born? They're born selfish, aren't they? It's like by the, some of the first things they know, the toddler creed is it's mine, Right? How do toddlers learn that so fast? They learn, it's me, mine, it's mine, right? They demand, babies demand total attention. And they don't give much back. They're very demanding. What they do give back is subject to a whole other sermon, right? They're, they're born selfish, selfish creatures we are. It's human nature. And by nature, I think of myself first, not you first. And so do you. And self-centeredness doesn't build relationships. It, it destroys relationships. You can't have teamwork if you're selfish. Proverbs 28, 25, today's English version says, selfishness only causes trouble. I, I love, you know, Proverbs was written by Solomon, the smartest person to ever live. But sometimes Solomon, when he writes it in in Proverbs, I feel like this is Captain Obvious, isn't it? This is like, I, I, know, I already know this is true. I think he simplifies it down for us in such a way that when you read selfishness only causes trouble, you can already think of a lot of examples of that in your own life. So if selfishness destroys relationships, then it's selflessness 
selflessness that builds them up. Will you fill that in? Being unselfish. What does selflessness mean? It means I think a little less of me and a little more of you. That's being selfless. I'm not the whole center of the universe. The world doesn't revolve around me. I'm realizing that, hey, there's other people here. Philippians 2.4 says, look out for one another's interests, not just your own. That's selflessness. Selflessness brings the best out of others, brings out the best in others. And it builds relationships. In fact, if you start acting selflessly in a relationship, it forces that other person to change because they have to interact with you in a different way. In your relationship equation, when you change and you start acting selfless to the other person, it changes the relationship equation and it even changes that person because they've got to respond to you in a different way. I've seen some of the most unlovable, unlikable, cranky people that nobody wants to be around. And as soon as somebody starts treating them selflessly, they start giving them what they need, not what they deserve. It transforms them. They have to start reacting in a way that that makes them different. God's favorite place to teach you selflessness is at home, isn't it? In your family. Probably the next best place is in your small group. Why? Because the people in your home and the people in your small group, they see you up close and personal on a regular basis. It's easy to be selfless in a crowd like this today because nobody's really asking you to do anything. They're not, nobody's demanding you. This is easy. I mean, basically, you're, you're only being tasked with, please stay awake, you know. And some of you will struggle with that. Don't snore if you fall asleep, right? That's why we keep it so cold in here. Is it too cold for some of you? Yeah. Today, it's not so bad. You got your coat with you. When you're in a relationship with other people, and you've got this give and take happening. You've got people who are different than you kind of kind of bumping up against you. That becomes an opportunity to learn selflessness, to learn how to be not as selfish as you've been. People from different backgrounds, people with different personalities. That's where you have to learn selflessness. Galatians 5.16, the message paraphrase says, Live freely animated and motivated by God's Spirit. I love that phrasing. Then you won't feel the compulsions of selfishness. Circle the last three words, compulsions of selfishness. Did you know that all of us are compulsive? Every one of us, we are compulsively selfish. We think about ourselves first just like the big picture. And if you don't think that you're that way, you might not be as in touch with reality as you think you are. You think more about you than anybody else. I think more about me than anybody else. And the only way we can break this cycle is with God's spirit inside of us. Anybody can be unselfish for a little while. Anybody can, can do that once in a while, just by sheer willpower. But in order to be unselfish, in order to be selfless over a sus- sustained period of time, we're going to have, God, have to have God's Spirit doing that for us, changing us, because pride kind of, kind of creeps in. How do you know whether you're motivated by 
by the Spirit or you're motivated by yourself. You know by pride when you feel like, look at me, I'm doing a good job. Look at me, I'm nice to people. Look at me, I, 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 I smiled at him. I, I got her door. You know, when I did something good for somebody. When God's Spirit is in us, we don't have that need of, of claiming credit. We don't have that need of announcing to everybody or to ourselves how unselfish we were. Everybody can be unselfish once in a while. God says, I want you to live a lifestyle of selflessness. I want you to live a lifestyle of being unselfish. The only way that that can happen is for God's Spirit to do His work in us, to make us more and more like Jesus, little by little. All right, here's the second thing that destroys relationships. The second thing I want you to write down, I just mentioned it. Pride destroys relationships. Pride will wreck a relationship, it'll wreck a marriage, it'll wreck a uh, relationship between siblings. Proverbs 13.10, pride leads to arguments. Now, pride shows up in a lot of different ways. One way it shows up is criticism. If we are critical of other people, if we tend to be judgmental of other people, if we tend to always put other people down or look down on other people, we have a, a pride problem. That's the reason we're critical. I know... I know growing up at church, I used to know some people who they thought criticalness was, they thought that was a, a spiritual gift. Yeah, I have the spiritual gift of criticism. Like, yeah, I, I don't think that's from God, y'all. I, I don't think that that's a spiritual, it's, I know it's not a spiritual gift. We have a pride problem when we're critical. Um, if we tend to be competitive and we're always, always, always comparing, look at her dress compared to my dress, look at his car compared to my car, look at, look at, their children compared to our children are so much more behaved and better than their children. You know, um, look at um, their spouse compared to ours. If we're always comparing titles and jobs and salaries in neighborhoods, that spirit of comparing, always looking at everybody else and comparing them and judging, that's a pride problem. If we have stubbornness, if we find it difficult to say those words, I, I'm sorry. If we choke on apologies, then we can never admit when we're wrong. I know so many people said, my dad would never admit when he was wrong. and drives people crazy. I don't know if that's a generational thing, if that's people from my generation, their dads, or are our teenagers going to be saying that about us? If you're, if you're too stubborn to admit that you're wrong, that's a pride problem. When too shallow to care about others, it's pride. The problem with pride is it's so self-deceiving. Everybody else can see it in us, but we can't see it in ourselves. When you have a pride problem, you don't see it in your life, and you don't like it when somebody tells you. Proverbs 16 18 says, Pride will destroy a person. A proud attitude leads to ruin. I love the same verse in the message prayer paraphrase. It says, First pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. So if you've had a hard fall, it might be pointing to just how big your ego was. Pride keeps us from apologizing in relationships. Pride destroys relationships. But what's the antidote? Humility. Fill that in. Humility builds relationships. Listen to these five things about relationships 
in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Live in harmony. Be sympathetic. Love each other. Have compassion. And be humble. Now really, the first four are built on that fifth one. Live in harmony, be sympathetic, love each other, have compassion. They're all built on humility. And if you take a look at these five things, these are the things we want in our relationships. We want to live in harmony. We want to be sympathetic. We certainly want people to be sympathetic to us. We want to love each other. We want to have compassion. How do we grow in humility? It's a tall order. How, how do, what does that look like? How do I become more and more humble? It happens by allowing Jesus Christ to have more and more control in our life. Jesus, take the wheel. When he begins to control our lives, when he begins to control our thoughts, when he begins to control our hearts and our attitudes, when he begins to control our reactions, he's got to be a part of this. Ephesians 4, verse 22 and 23 says, Let the Spirit change your way of thinking and make you into a new person. Let God's Spirit change the way you're thinking and make you into a new person. How do I become a new person? How do I learn to think a different way? It's the basic law of relationships. The basic law of relationships is this. I tend to become like the people I spend the most time with. If you spend all your time with grumpy people, you'll become grumpy. If you spend all your time with happy people, you'll become happy. It's the law of the seven dwarfs. Whatever dwarf you spend your time with. If all your friends are dopey, guess what? <laughs> You're dopey. You become dopey. If you want more, if Pastor Rich has been telling our teenagers, when my kids were in, in youth group and Pastor Rich was our youth pastor, he would tell them all the time, you show me your five best friends, I'll show you your future. And that's not just for middle schoolers. That's for middle-agers as well. You show me your five best friends, I'll show you your future. If you want to have more humility, I encourage you to spend time with Jesus. He's humble. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to spend time in his word. He wants you to spend time in prayer with him. The more time you spend walking and talking with Jesus the more humble we'll become because he's humble. Philippians 2, verse 3, 5, and 6 says, Be humble and give more honor to others than to yourselves. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. Think about that. Jesus left heaven. No one has done more no one has done anything more humble than Jesus. He left heaven to come and live with us, to give his life for us, to die on the cross for and to be resurrected for us. And when we spend time with him, the more time we spend with him, the more humble it enables us to be. And that will spill over into all your other relationships. The more time you spend with Jesus the better your relationships will be. And it's because the more time you spend with Jesus, the more like him you become. And humility is one of his primary characteristics as well as loving and all those other fruits of the Spirit. There's a third struggle we face. 
And that's the struggle of insecurity. We feel that in there. insecurity destroys relationships. It's difficult to have a healthy relationship with an insecure person. And insecurity has never been as rampant as it is right now. So many people are dealing with insecurity issues, anxiety issues. Proverbs 29:25 says the fear of human opinion disables. When I'm so insecure that I think about what you think about me, that disables my life. When I'm so insecure that I'm worried about meeting your expectations, all the expectations that people put on you are the perceived expectations that you think they put on you. What's the problem with that fear? Well, when I'm afraid, it tends to make me want to control, control all those relationships and all those, those people in my life. Control destroys relationships because of the insecurity. It's an amazing dilemma that we have as human beings. We long to be close to people, but we fear being close to people. We want it, but we don't want it. We long to have intimacy with others, but we are so scared, petrified, that anybody gets close enough to us like that. And if you can't get close to someone because of fear in the relationship, it destroys or it deteriorates, it disintegrates that relationship. What do we fear in our relationships? We fear a lot of things. I just want to cover two of them because they're two biggies. The first thing we fear is exposure. We fear that somebody's going to find out what I'm really like inside. So we hide ourselves. We fear, we don't want people to know what I'm like. By the way, this, this isn't new. This is man's oldest fear. It goes all the way back to Adam. It says in Genesis 3, 10, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I was afraid of being exposed, so I hid. Now, most pe- people aren't as afraid of being naked nowadays. Have you noticed what they don't wear? Yeah, but we are afraid of being exposed emotionally, so we hide ourselves. We cover up. We wear, wear masks. It's never been easier to do this. You think about social media. You think about Instagram and, and Facebook and Twitter. You can, you can create your own profile. You don't even have to use a picture of yourself. You can tell us all you look like somebody totally different. Or you can take a picture of yourself and you can doctor it up, right? You can take all the tools, the filters, the Photoshop, and you can turn it, you know, you make anybody look like, make me tall, skinny, and great looking. And we can hide behind this mask, this front, this you know, we, we can be an, an entirely make-believe person online. We can hide ourselves. Because there's something in us that it's like, if I'm real, if I'm, if I'm exposed, what if somebody really understands my fears, my faults? What if, they, what if they find out about my dark side? What if they find about the parts that I don't want anybody to know about? Fear makes us dishonest, makes us hide. And then you don't 
get to experience one of the things that God puts you on this earth to experience, which is to be known, fully known, and to know others. Whether, whether you ever get married or not, God wants you to have some relationships with people where they know the real you and accept you. It can be one of the greatest fears. Probably the greatest fear is the second one, the fear of being rejected. We've all been rejected at some point. We all know what it's like to be rejected and how much it hurts. Any of you ever get picked last on the playground? You know, they're, they're, they're picking up teams. Maybe it was in your neighborhood. We're going to play baseball or football. They're picking up teams, and the captain picks and picks and picks. And you, you know it's going to happen before it even happens because it's happened before. And it goes all the way down, and it's like, all right, you get Walsh. And like, we don't want him. Even though you take him. All right, we'll take him. Even though it's not even our pick. You don't even want him? Nope. You know, it's like, we'll put you out on right field, right or right field. You're the foul ball guy, Jerry. You just go out there. And we all know what it's like to be picked last or to be rejected when you go to ask someone, hey, will you, you remember when you used to write the little notes, check a box, will you go with me? Where are we going, you know? Um, we, you, you ask him out, hey, we, or you get a friend to do it, hey, will you ask so-and-so, you know. Nowadays, these kids don't have to worry about it. It's all text messages, right? We know what it's like to be rejected, and it affects us in such a way. There's bigger rejections than being picked last and, and not getting a date for Friday night. Some of you, you've had parents, or you've had teachers, you've had coaches, and they said horrible words to you like, you're never going to amount to anything. Or you're not good enough. Or you're so stupid. And, and you felt the sting of rejection. Maybe you even felt it in the church world. Somebody who claimed to be a Christ follower, claimed to be a believer, a Christian. But like you weren't accepted into their group or into their, into their church or their youth group. Why? Because you didn't have the right clothes or you didn't have, you came from the wrong side of the tracks or your family was blended or you weren't like everybody else there listen all of us have been rejected and if that still hurts you it just bringing it up you can feel some of that i just want to tell you that i'm sorry god grieves at your rejection nobody understands rejection more than jesus christ nobody was rejected more than him he came to love he came to heal he came to be in relationship and what did they do? They hung him on a cross. That's the ultimate rejection. He understands how you feel. So insecurity destroys relationship. What builds them up? We know the answer to this one. Love builds relationships. That's what this whole series is about. We're going through the love chapter in our small groups on the videos, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love builds up relationships. 1 John 4:18 says, love has no fear. Because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it shows us that his love has not been perfected in us. Now, how does that work? How does love expel all fear? Here's how it happens, or here's what it does. When we are afraid, if we choose instead to love... It puts the focus on them and not on ourselves. I'm no longer as concerned with what they think of me. I'm concerned with what do they need? How can I help them? 
How can I show love to them? And when you show love to whatever you're... It has the ability to kick the fear right out of your life. How can we do that, though? Because saying is way easier than doing it. How can we find the power to focus on other people when we're so pre-programmed to think, well, how does this affect me? What are they thinking about me? How do I change that calculus? Here's how you do it. You have to realize how much God loves you. When we start to realize how much God loves us and how God accepts us, God loves you just the way you are. God accepts you just the way you are. Now, God loves you the way you are and he accepts you the way you are, but he loves you enough to not want you to stay that way. In fact, his whole goal is to help you to become more and more and more, as you follow him, more and more and more like his son Jesus. God loves you the way you are. He accepts you the way you are. But he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And part of that plan and purpose is to put his spirit in you and to give you the fruits of the spirit and help you to become more and more like his son, Jesus. And when I finally get it, when I start to get how much God loves me and accepts me, it is so freeing because now I don't have to, I don't have to measure up to you. I don't, have to, I don't have to feel accepted by you. I have my identity not caught up in what you might think about me. In fact, you might have been just having another bad day. But I, I don't have to feel pressured to, to make you happy with me. I don't have to feel pressured to live up to your expectations. All of us want that. We want to live with that kind of confidence. The place you find that kind of confidence is understanding or accepting. Just like the song we sang, I am who you, when we sang that champion song, I am who you say I am. All of us want that. All right. One more. There's one more enemy I've got to get to before we're done. One more attitude that destroys relationship. Resentment destroys relationships. Now, you've heard me talk about this many, many times. We've done a whole series on forgiveness, a whole series on resentment. This is the other big one. Selfishness and resentment are the two, the two biggest things that sabotage relationships. All four of these destroy relationships. Resentment is, is right up there with selfishness. Job 5.2 says, To worry yourself to death with resentment is foolish. Is a foolish, senseless thing to do. Now, look at that word foolish. I just got to let you know. The Bible says the word foolish, what it really means is stupid and dumb. Now, I know some people get really offended. Oh, you should never say stupid, Pastor. You never say dumb. Here's what foolishness means. Foolish means stupid, dumb. Okay? In fact, sometimes in the Bible it uses those words in some of the modern translations. So I'm bringing that up because I'm about to use those words in a couple of minutes, and I don't want you to get mad at me. Look, everybody blows it. It says in the Bible, well, I mean, we call it mistakes, but the Bible calls it sin. We all sin. You sin. I sin. We're all sinners. That means I'm not perfect, you're not perfect. I don't bat a thousand, you don't bat a thousand. I don't measure up to God's standards, you don't measure up to God's standards. I don't even measure up to my own standards most of the time. And because we're not perfect, we hurt people. You hurt people. And I hurt people. Usually it's the people that are closest to us that we hurt. And they hurt us. 
in life, you're going to be hurt and you're going to hurt intentionally and unintentionally. That's just a fact. You can't get through life. So if you know you're going to be hurt, in fact, you're going to be hurt over and over and over again in life. What's, what's more important isn't that the fact that you're going to be hurt. What's important is what do I do with the hurt? What do you do with the hurt is more important than the fact is that you're going to be hurt. Are you going to allow it to make you bitter or are you going to allow it to make you better? Every time you're hurt... You're making a choice, becoming more better or more bitter in life. Are you going to be resentful and carry a grudge? Or are you going to allow it to make you bitter? The Bible tells us, and even really history tells us, and experience tells us that it's interesting that opposites tend to attract. And then I always say when they get married, they tend to attack, you know, you, you, what, it, what attracts you and fascinates you at first irritates the tar out of you later. Happens all the time. When you're single, you look out there, you see somebody who's different than you, and that's very interesting. And maybe you're kind of shy and reserved, and they're kind of, oh, my goodness, they're loud and boisterous, and they're full of life and vivacious, and you find that attractive because that's not like you. And you get into this relationship where you get married, and 365 days go by, and it's like your one-year anniversary. You're thinking, do you have to be so loud all the time? I mean, Pastor, he even snores when he's asleep. You know, and it starts irritating you, and you, 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 you attract, and then you attack. And if you've been in any relationship for any length of time, especially if you've been married, you know, I think all of us would say, all of us would admit, yep, we all had some unrealistic expectations in our marriage. I expected her to meet all my needs. She expected me to meet all, to meet all, her, all her needs. Sounds the same. It's totally opposite. And often it's not the big things in life that make us resentful. Those can and obviously do. But it's a lot of little things that pile up. A lot of little things that pile up one after another after another. We never deal with them, and it becomes a straw that breaks the camel's back. And we get irritated, and those irritations, when we hold on to them, can turn into a lifelong resentment. Now, let me clarify something. Anger is not always wrong. Resentment is always wrong. There's a time, a right time, and a right way to be angry. The Bible is clear about this, that you can... You can be angry and not sin. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. Sometimes anger is actually a, a result of love. If you hurt my wife, I'm going to get up. I'm going to get angry. If you hurt my, my kids or my grandkids, then I'm going to get angry. When we see something happen like Wednesday, that should make us angry that that much conflict is in our schools. But you can get angry and not sin. There's a way to do that. But resentment, resentment is always a sin. It's always wrong. When you pile up that anger, why does God say not to do this? Well, first, resentment causes you to stop thinking clearly. You're not thinking logically. You make a lot of bad decisions. When, you, when our perspective gets cloudy and we live in this resentment and it changes our emotions, you get resentful and you don't think straight. The second reason, not only do you not think straight, but you start acting in a self-defeating way. The most foolish things that have ever been done in history have been done 
in revenge and retaliation and resentment. So when you're resentful, those two things happen. You don't think straight, and you start doing self-defeating behavior. Psalm 73, the New American Standard says, Since my heart was embittered and my soul deeply wounded, I was stupid. Right there in the Bible. And I could not understand. In other words, I didn't think straight, and I started doing self-defeating behavior. The Bible doesn't want us to do this. What does the, what's the antidote to resentment, to living a life with all this poisonous anger that's building up? The, the, the antidote to resentment is forgiveness. Will you fill that in? Just like, just like resentment tears down a relationship, forgiveness builds up a relationship. If you're going to have a long-term marriage or you're going to have a long-term relationship with siblings or your parents, you're going to need massive doses of forgiveness. Colossians 3.13 says you must make allowance for each other's faults and forgive the person who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. There's three reasons we should forgive other people. This is a whole sermon. I'm just going to give you the bullets. The three main, first of all, resentment doesn't work. It just poisons your life. You should forgive because resentment doesn't work. The second reason you should forgive is because God's forgiven you. And the third reason is because you're going to need forgiveness in the future. say, what is that? What do you mean by that? Jesus taught us to pray this way. When he taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know that part. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And what you're praying when you say that, we've all prayed it. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. We say, God, I want you to forgive me as much as I forgive everybody else. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Is that what we really want to pray? God, you forgive me as much as I'm forgive. What we really want to pray is, God, you forgive me even though I don't ever forgive anybody else. That's not how Jesus told us to pray. We forgive because God says we need to forgive, and it's for our own sake. Now, you might say, well, Jerry, I just can't forgive them. I cannot forgive that person. You are exactly right. You cannot forgive them. That's why you need Jesus Christ. You can't do it on your own. Human love runs out. Human forgiveness runs out. You need God's supernatural love and God's supernatural forgiveness in your heart so that you can give that out. Titus 3, verse 3 through 7 says, Once our, once our lives were full of resentment and envy, but then Christ saved us. Not because we were good enough to be saved, because we're not, but because his, of his kindness and love. That's his grace. By washing away our sins, everything is forgiven and wiped out. And giving us the new joy of the indwelling Holy Spirit. God puts his spirit of love in my life. All because of what Jesus our Savior did on the cross. So he could declare us not guilty in God's eyes. You need to experience God in your life. You're never going to be able to let go of resentment. Until you get God's love in your heart. Every day, every moment in your life. Let me explain what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not making excuses for the other person who hurt you. 
they hurt you and it was real. Forgiveness is not saying it didn't hurt, because it did hurt. Not minimizing it. It didn't hurt. Forgiveness is not justifying it and saying, hey, it's no big deal. It was a big deal. Or you wouldn't still be thinking of it on a Sunday morning in January of 2022. Forgiveness isn't saying it wasn't wrong. So what is forgiveness? Here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is letting go of the pain and letting go of my right to get even. It's saying, you don't owe me anything. I forgive you. You don't owe me anything. I'm letting go of the resentment and the pain, and I'm forgiving you. Now, why would anybody do that? You're not doing it for them. You're doing it for your own sake because unforgiveness sabotages resentment in your life, sabotages all relationships because you're living in misery longer than you need to be. Some people are still allowing people from their past to hurt them in the present because they haven't let go of the resentment. They can't really hurt you in the present. The past is in the past unless you let them. And the Bible says that that's foolish, dumb, and stupid to let somebody from the past hurt me in the present because I won't let go of the resentment. Let go and forgive. Resentment, the Bible says, turns our heart into a desert. It dries it out and shrivels it up. And then you don't have anything to give to your kids or to your boyfriend or girlfriend or to your husband or your wife or to your parent. Because when your heart shrivels up because of resentment, it affects all of your other relationships. Isaiah 43, 18 and 19 in the today's English version says, But the Lord says, I mean, this is good news. If you have kind of a hardened heart, look what he says he wants to do. The Lord says, Don't cling to events of the past or dwell on what happened long ago. Watch for this new thing that I'm going to do. It's happening already. You can see it now. I will make a road through the wilderness, and I will give you streams of water there. One of the versions says, God says, I'm going to turn that desert into an oasis. Now, you may have had some relational disasters in your life. We all have. Welcome to the human race. Everybody has had some relational disasters. The question is, what are you going to do with them? God wants to start a new beginning right in the middle of this 40 days. But it starts with you opening your life, your heart to Jesus Christ. Or if you're already a believer, of you opening these areas of your life to your Lord and saying, Jesus, take the wheel in this area of my life. In this relationship in my life. I want to encourage you to do that. Let's pray and ask God to help us. As we close in prayer, let me just ask you, your heads bowed and your eyes closed, a couple of personal questions. First, who do you need to be more unselfish with? Who have you been critical of or judgmental of? 
Have you been unwilling to admit I was wrong? To say I'm sorry? To ask, please forgive me? Who do you need to say that to? I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Have you been afraid to be real with other people? Have you hidden your emotions? Who do you need to forgive? All four of the antidotes to resentment and insecurity and selfishness and pride, all four of these antidotes are found in a relationship to Jesus Christ. You get that relationship lined up and all the other ones start to fall into place. You need to allow Jesus to be the Lord and the manager, the boss of your life, to take the wheel. Let Him fill you with His love. And you'll start to have better relationships with people. Why don't you pray this prayer in your heart, right where you're at. You don't even have to say it out loud. Just think these words. Say, Dear Jesus, You've seen every relationship that I've had. The good, the bad, and the ugly. You know how selfish and prideful and insecure I've been. You know how resentment can mess up my relationships. So I admit that I need I need your help, Jesus, in my life and in my relationships. As much as as I understand, Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. Maybe that's you're praying it for the first time. Ask Jesus to come into your life, and he will. God, please allow Jesus to come into my life. Or maybe you already are a follower, and your prayer needs to be, Jesus, I'm asking you to come into this area of my life. Take the wheel in this relationship. I want a fresh start that you can offer. It's in your name I pray, Jesus.